One, two, one, two. I can go as close as you want. You tell me. One, two, one, two. I think it sounds pretty good. Okay. <clears throat> okay. All right, well, let's just do it. Let's do it. So. Yes. How many terrorists have you met? <laughs> oh, boy. A few. I don't know the exact number. And that defin- the, the term is often a contested definition, but I've certainly met a few. Yeah? What, what is the term that I should be using? I, I don't mean it's a problematic term for me to hear. I just mean that it's, conte- you know, defining somebody as a terrorist is contested. One person's terrorist could be another person's freedom fighter. So, you know, I, I would not be the arbiter of who's a terrorist and who's a freedom fighter. But by, by the normal definitions, like, you know, Al-Qaeda people and their fellow travelers, who I would certainly say are terrorists, I've met a few of them. And this is when you were filming uh, Killing in the Name. How many countries did you end up going to? Uh, for that, we filmed in Jordan uh, and Indonesia. Jordan and Indonesia. And how many... Freedom fighters slash terrorists. I'm not calling these guys freedom fighters, by the way. I'm just saying, in general, that term can be applied liberally by people. I would not call these folks freedom fighters, uh, personally. But um, I, you know, I filmed with one guy who was a recruiter for Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and I filmed with a guy who was a sort of mid-level operative for an affiliate of theirs in Indonesia. And I filmed with um, another guy who ran a madrasa or a pesantren in central Java whose brothers were definitely terrorists who were sort of the masterminds there. And he was not, I don't know if he was a terrorist per se. I, you know, some people might say that about him. I, I, I don't, you know, but he was sort of in that world and definitely teaching young Muslim kids uh, a very, um, what I would say, like a very militant interpretation of the Quran that a lot of Islamic scholars took issue with. What's a madrasa? A madrasa is a boarding school to, or school to train young Muslim, I think mostly boys. It could be, you know, some of these names, and I'm not the expert on this, but some of these terms are totally benign terms. Like it just means a school, like a boarding school, for example, or Pesantren, I think is, is also a name for one of them. Um, it's been a little while since I did this project, but in American news media, it's like madrasa always means school that trains terrorists, but that's not actually the case. I mean, you could go to a madrasa that's like a totally normal boarding school that's an Islamic school, basically. Um, but, of course, some of them are more militant than the ones that we focused on. The one that I filmed in was, was certainly fairly militant. What year was this when you started uh, I was filming that in 2009 and 10. 2009 and 10. Yeah. And what was the premise of the film, just for people who don't know? Uh, well, the premise of the film was it was in the midst of a time of, of still a lot of upheaval and, and disquiet around violence conducted in the name of religion. And there was a very high sensitivity because there had been a number of incidents to violence conducted um, by people claiming to do it in the name of Islam. And one of the big incidents 
was in Jordan when there was a series of bombings in hotels in Amman, killed a number of people. I don't remember the exact number, but many people. Uh, and one of the targets was a hotel where my friend, now friend, uh, Ashraf Al-Khalid and his fiance were having their wedding. And they weren't actually the targets of it, but they became swept up in it. And their wedding party was hit directly by these suicide bombers and or by bombers. And uh, they lost three of their four parents and I think 27 of their close friends and family in this bombing. And Ashraf, who is a fairly devout Muslim himself, wanted to understand why this happened and wanted to speak to the, the associates of the people who did this to understand why they did it and to try and start a dialogue about different ways for, for people to resolve their differences and to try and raise awareness of the fact that it's often actually Muslims. At, at the time, it was often Muslims who were the victims of these violent attacks that were supposedly done in the name of Islam. And so I went with Ashraf on this journey around the world, or to a few places anyway, where we were able, to, where he was able to, and in some cases I was able to speak to people who had perpetrated some of these acts. In, in one case, the people who were associated with the folks who, who killed his family members and friends, and in other cases, groups, affiliated groups who had done other terrible bombings in Indonesia. We, we filmed with the people who had conducted these bombings in Bali in a nightclub in 2003 that were very horrific and, and really had scarred that country. What was the first place you visited? Well, we filmed in Jordan with um, Ashraf. He's from Amman. We filmed there. We filmed with his, uh, Ashraf and his family. And we also filmed with a man named Zaid Harani, who I learned later went on to fight, I think, in Syria and, and died, was killed in battle. But he had been the recruiter who recruited the young man who, uh, a young man from Jordan who had actually done a terrible bombing in the Iraq war. And he also had, was connected, I'm trying, you know, this is a, 12, 13 years ago now, so I'm, I don't remember every single fact. I've done a lot of films since then. But um, he uh, also was involved with, he was a recruiter for Al-Qaeda, and he had, he had been involved with recruiting the people who bombed Ashraf's wedding, and he had been involved more violently with recruiting this young man named Ra'id, who by all accounts came from this very nice sort of middle-class family and who was kind of very quickly um, uh, radicalized by Zaid and became a suicide bomber who drove an ambulance packed with explosives into the middle of a market and killed like 160 mostly women and children in Iraq, which was this horrific, horrific bombing. Uh, and we filmed with Zaid's father, who was, of course, understandably extremely emotional and very broken up that his son, I think his son actually was 
he was in California and then he was in Chicago. He was studying in the US. His, he had a sister who was a doctor in London and a brother who was a something else and somewhere, you know, it's like this, you know, I would say seemingly happy middle-class family and this seemingly well-adjusted kid who was, you know, moving on towards a professional life and had a couple of problems with his immigration visa in the U.S. and came back to Jordan for a while and in that period very quickly uh, got radicalized and, you know, changed his appearance. And Zaid, what was what I remember from Zaid that was really chilling is that how long does it take you to radicalize a kid like Riot? And he said, two weeks, maybe three. He was the most interesting character to me in that. I mean, Ashraf is the most interesting person and it's his film or it's about him, but uh, Zaid was the most chilling because he was quite an intelligent guy. Um, his philosophies of doing what he did were well worked out. They contained like, like all crazy people, and I would include in this, you know, Donald Trump. They mix in lies and crazy ideas with things that are factual. And so if you're a follower of theirs, you begin to, it's easier to sort of swallow what they're saying because you see certain things and your eyes are like, oh, that is tr true. But then they mix in these other things that are totally insane and not true, but you sort of lose the ability to, to distinguish it. And I think Ryad, or sorry, um, Zaid was quite good at that and clearly was good at convincing people. Um, I did get an interesting vision of the some of the structure of those organizations and that you see someone like Zaid, who's clearly very sharp and, you know, capable of, of a lot because he's a smart, was a smart guy. And then you see, I can't remember the name of um, this sort of lower middle level operative that we filmed with in, in Jakarta, but he had been uh, like a driver, I think, for the Bali bombings. This guy was clearly not, person who conceived this plan or who thought about how it needed to work. He was just someone who was told to go here and do this and go there and do that. And he did it. And he had his, his own way of looking at it that was, was different. Um, but, you know, it takes all types to make these organizations run. And so I got to meet with different people uh, who were involved in different facets of it. And it was pretty fascinating. And it was also fascinating for me to watch Ashraf have these conversations because he would get into theological arguments with them, which were really w well beyond my uh, ability. I'm, I'm not a scholar of really any religion or certainly not of Islam, but Ashraf was, um, you know, fairly learned. He can certainly enter into really interesting conversations with these guys about what the meaning of various passages in the Quran was. And they had a certain reverence for him because he's from Jordan on the Arabian Peninsula and he's obviously a fluent Arabic speaker and these guys are speak Bahasa Indonesia, but they, they're learning Arabic, but it's really a second language and they're certainly, most of these kids anyway, were not that fluent in it, but they had ideas about what everything meant and they had interesting arguments. You see some of that in the film. Um, but Ashraf was very inspiring and it was life-changing. As many films I've done, they all are sort of wonderfully enlightening to me. I always learn something new 
I always meet people that I wouldn't have met, and I feel very lucky to be able to do that. And I certainly, that film was was very transformative experience, making it and meeting all these people. When you talk about, when you say, like, you were filming with these various people, like, what does that, that actually mean? You go in with your camera. You, do you have a crew? I have a crew, yeah. Uh, how many people? Uh, on that, you know, it depends on the project. On that film, we were pretty small. It was myself, my cameraman, Tom Hurwitz, who I worked with on many, traveled to many places with. Um, Jess Van Garcy, who is our producer. I actually did sound on a lot of that film in addition to directing it. Um, and then we would usually have a local fixer and maybe a driver. Okay. So uh, pretty small. We had a great fixer in Jordan. What does that mean, a fixer? A fixer is a local producer who can make arrangements, you know, everything from logistical arrangements, cars, hotels, safety, to connections. And Rania Kadri was this woman. She also, she's a, often, she's a journalist, really. She does work for the time, New York Times and other global papers and, but she's an amazing, she is an amazing person. And she really was able to connect us with, you know, to get in touch with these guys from Al-Qaeda. You don't just look them up in the phone book. It really takes quite a bit of work to get their trust enough to even have a phone call or a meeting. And so Rania and Jess worked on that for quite a while. Uh, and I worked on it. And we were able to get these meetings we had another fixer in Indonesia who I apologize to him. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But these are folks who have local connections and who are able to give you sort of real ground knowledge about where you are and what you're doing. And in any kind of international film, they're very crucial people. To have a great fixer is really, really crucial. Well, something that I was wondering when I watched it was... What is these people's incentive to talk to you? Because a lot of times they're being confronted. You have a camera. They're being confronted by someone who is a victim of the attacks that they're perpetrating or similar attacks. Some some of the conversations, they're kind of being yelled at or yelling with. Well, I think that they, most people want to tell their own stories. And if you speak to them honestly, I always approach everything with that in mind, that I want to work with people to tell their own stories own stories in their own words. I don't really have a sort of, you know, I have a point of view in terms of what I think is interesting about the story and what I want to focus on and bring out in a narrative in a way that people can understand it and follow the story. But I don't usually go into it with that much of a point of view about whether people are telling the truth, whether they're right or wrong. I mean, I certainly can develop that point of view after speaking with them. But I, I try to go into it and just work with people to tell their own stories. And I think if you approach it that way and people believe that you honestly want them to tell their own stories in their own words, they're excited to share them with you. And what does that end up looking like on like a boots on the ground level? Like you're talking about you working on and this New York Times woman working on getting those meetings. You know, having them. conversations with people, with the gatekeepers of different communities, you know, I used to do films, maybe still will again, but in far off rural areas, I remember going to villages in, in Uganda and in villages in, in South India, actually. And, you know, you, you can't just roll up there as some American crew and just say, we want to talk to so-and-so. Let us, let us talk to this person or that person. Like, it doesn't work like that. You have to, in a respectful way, contact the sort of local leaders, explain what you're doing, why you're there 
usually sit down and break bread with somebody. Before and, the cameras are on? Oh, yeah, way before the cameras are on. Did you break bread with any of the people you talked to on that film before? Uh, I on? didn't, but, you know, Rania and, um, and Jess did. With for the, sure. like, Al-Qaeda recruiter? Yeah, I mean, or with his sort of boss or, or the head of his, his group. They had to wait in his house for a while to get an audience with him and then explain what we were doing and... Yeah. You say explain what you were doing, but, like, who, who do you say you are? Like, how... Say we are who we are. I, I never lie about that. It's, it's, it's dangerous. I mean, it's wrong, I think, just journalistically. Right. It's wrong. But I also feel like it, it can be dangerous because if people, you know, serious people like that find out that you're lying to them, they, they, their suspicion is not, oh, you're going to make a documentary that I don't like. Their suspicion right. is that you're in the CIA and you're going to kill me. So... It's, it's important, I think, to be honest and transparent and, yeah, so we don't, we just say what we're doing and we say who we are and, you know, try to explain to them that our motives are what we say they are and that, that there's a reason to share their story. And I think, you know, someone like Zaid is a, was, he's in the deceased now, but he's a a smart guy, he believed in what he was saying. You know, it wasn't a, an act. And so he was happy to say it. And, and you know, within that, as much as I totally disagree with his political philosophy and I totally disagree with killing people and his methods and, you know, there's very little common ground that I would have with someone like him. But I, you know, some of the critiques that he made of Western policy are certainly uh, worth debating and listening to. I mean, again, you may not agree with them. I may not agree with them, but they're not so far out afield that they're not important to hear and he can state them in an important way. And I think he knew that. So he gave us, you know, after we got permission from his, his boss, effectively, um, he gave us quite a while. And actually, I remember the interview, you know, I was remembering I did sound for a lot of that movie, but some, in a couple of the interviews in Jordan, we had a sound man because I didn't want to have to do both things. It's a little distracting. And I remember at that one, we had a sound man and uh, Zaid showed up with this minder of his own, some guy from his organization, very scary looking dude, who was wearing this big thobe. And the sound guy said, do you want me to, you want me to just boom these guys, or should I, uh, can I put a lob on them too? And I thought, oh, yes, Father, you just boom them, it's fine. And I thought, you know what, put a lob on them. Because I wanted him to go over to the other side and, like, have to lift up this guy's shirt to put the lob under it, because I thought, who knows, this big blousey thing, who knows what these guys, I mean, probably I was just being paranoid. I was, at the end of the day, everything was fine. But it was very weird, you know, Rania, who is this woman who normally dresses in very, very stylish clothes that she, you know, that could be on a woman in New York or Paris or wherever, had to wear a full niqab, full co not just a hijab, but like a full covering over her. Not, not, a, not a burqa, but a mostly covering and had to kind of sit on the floor next to me in this kind of position that, you know, I would never, would never be a way that I would engage with somebody, but because these guys has this extreme sort of patriarchal view of her, and that's how she had to operate. And she did it because she was translating. That's another thing fixers often do. 
And, you know, it was a very tense and long interview, but it was fascinating. And I think back on it and I think back on Zaid, um, on meeting somebody like that. It was, it was definitely a very unique and informative period in my life to meet, to speak with those guys. What was safety like on that film? It's basically based on research and trust, and especially trust in Rania. She was guiding us through where we could go, where we, where we held that interview was very specific, where we thought we could do it in this place that they would agree to that we thought was safe. What, what qualifies a place as being safe? Well, it just depends on the specific circumstances. It depends on the group. You know, I've done a, a bunch of films with various levels of danger, and it depends on what, what it is that you're afraid of. If you're filming with, like, Russian agents, you're worried they're going to poison you. If you're filming with Al-Qaeda, you're worried they're going to blow you up. Or, you know, I don't know if you're worried, but your, your concern would be one thing or another. And based I think on that, worried is a yeah, fair... Based on that, you make an assessment, but you really have to make the assessment with people who have deep, proven local knowledge. And that's why the fixers are so important. I, I've worked on other films where I had security consultants. Were there any for this one? I don't remember that. We, I don't think we had a formal security consultant. We might have spoken to some people. And also, it's the research you do on the, on the ground before you get there, when you're there with knowledgeable people. And you meet with people, journalists, um, sometimes State Department people, sometimes local officials who can explain to you what's going on in a way that's very, very hard or maybe impossible for an outsider, for a Westerner to show up, for example, in, in Jordan or Indonesia and understand what's going on on the ground and the meaning of the relationships that people have is basically impossible. So you have to work closely and consistently with local collaborators of yours fixers, producers, to really make sure that you're doing things right and properly and safely. And, <clears throat> excuse me, that's really the only way to do it. How, how threatened did you feel at a given moment? You mentioned, like, being concerned that the guy has something under his clothes and... You know, there were... That was... Cutting it close, but I felt like the place we were in was probably pretty secure. When we went to the madrasa um, in central Java, we had been advised, you know, don't stay, don't stay in this town. We stayed in the nearest city, which was several hours away. We got up early in the morning. We drove in there. We stayed all day and filmed, and then we left before nightfall. And we were told specifically, you know, get in there, be in there, and then get out. The concern being? Well, I guess the concern being that if there were people, you know, the people we were meeting with were okay because they agreed to meet with us. But if there were other people around there who didn't like the fact that we were there, whether they knew who we were or just that we were this, like, you know, Western crew, clearly with film equipment, and they just didn't like that fact that, you know, if you got in and out quickly, anyone... Um, having a problem with you wouldn't really have enough time to sort of organize and do anything to you. <clears throat> and definitely there I felt I was happy not to stay there any longer than we did. <laughs> the guy, the guy we were filming with wanted my Facebook information. <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah, great. You know, I'd call him, talk to my, sec you know, my assistant. She'll give it to you. 
don't give it to her. But he was, uh, he asked if we could have a picture. And I said, sure, we can have a picture. And he made this gesture and he's speaking in Bahasa Indonesia, which I don't speak. And I asked to fix it. What he's saying? He's saying, oh, you know, he was smiling, very sweet. And he said, you know, this is great that we could have this conversation. If, if he had, you know, if he had met me a couple of months ago, he probably would have just stabbed me in the gut right, up, right upon seeing me. But now that we've had a chance to talk, he sees that I'm a nice guy and we can take this picture together. And I said, that's, that's wonderful. Thank you very much. Uh, needless to say, I didn't, I didn't get into a social media relationship with him. Did you ever think that those guys were going to kill you? Or maybe not those people specifically, but... You know, like I said, you just try and take it one step at a time. I mean... There's risk in, in all things. There are ways to tread carefully and mitigate that. There aren't too many ways to totally eliminate it. And you have to be okay with some uncertainty and you have to operate as, you know, step-by-step step as carefully and thoughtfully as you can. You have to trust people if you can't trust anybody and if you don't have any risk tolerance, it's probably not the right, right line of work. What were the most uncertain moments? I mean, I had very uncertain moments in Egypt and the next film I did filming during the Egyptian revolution, uh, when sort of order was breaking down and, you know, that was more uncertain. I think with this, Definitely going into this rural madrasa was, was risky. I think meeting with these, these guys in Jordan was risky. Um, <clears throat> you know, there are things I did then that I maybe wouldn't do again. I have a 13-year-old son now. Um, I ha he was a young baby when I did this film. And um, that went through my mind a lot, you know, not the risk for me, but the risk to my family or the, you know, the risk of me being got, killed basically and being a dad. Um, and, you know, the more that that sets in, the less willing that I am to do certain things, at least now. Um, I don't know. Life is full of risk. There, there are other risky things that we all do. You know, now everyone's been accustomed to dealing with risk. It's like a daily, daily calculation. You know, what are you willing to do in, in the face of the coronavirus? Or what's your risk? What's your understanding of what your risk is? What's your tolerance for what you're willing to do? And some people have very, very low risk tolerances and they haven't eaten in a restaurant in two years and they don't do anything. And some people never cared at all and just went about their lives. And there's a lot of space in between. So I think similarly for this work, you know, I, I try to always minimize risk to operate as carefully as I can um, in order to get what I need. I've definitely been in places where I've been in these hotels with real war journalists and my family and friends back home think I'm crazy and I'm doing crazy stuff. And I look at them and I'm like, you guys are, you know, quite a bit braver than I because whatever I'm going out of the hotel doing that day is much less 
um, risky than some of the things that some of these folks do. And I, I admire their courage and for doing it. I think it's important that some people do it. And, you know, I've known some who have died from it. I filmed with some who have died from it. I've made films about people who've died from it. So I think that, uh, there's no right or wrong other than to say we always try to be careful and get as much knowledge as possible. And uh, try, for me anyway, tread carefully as, as much as possible, but no, understand that there's, there's still risk involved for some of these things, some of these meetings. You know, most people are good that you meet. Some people are not. Most people are not lying to you all the time. Occasionally somebody is, you know. You have to try and really tread carefully. If you had to put, I'm trying to think of some way to like quantify it, or if you had to put some percentage or something on each of the films that you did with, that had this greater element of risk, I don't feel like the Rudy Giuliani docu-musical maybe had the same element of risk as no the Egyptian um, Revolution one. Certainly, certainly not. Um, I guess, how would you rank them in terms of risk, risk well, uncertainty? Well, you know, killing the name, meeting with these extremist groups was risky. Um, before the spring, after the fall, which was the film I was talking about in the Egyptian Revolution, had some risk to it as well, certainly. That felt riskier in the moment because it was just such a... The atmosphere was crazy... You know, you really, something I really experienced in that film that I'd never experienced before and that always has stuck with me is, you know, I told you I studied anthropology. I always think of us as sort of socialized apes. We have these relationships, we groom each other, we have hierarchies, um, we have reasons that constrain our behavior. And there are these actually very layered complex systems that, that are really fascinating. And that's what I make films about. And that's what people write books about. And that's sort of the pith of social life, right? But when you're in a real revolution, when you see that percolating, you can go out on the street and you can feel all of those rules and interconnections kind of evaporate. It sort of felt that way a little bit in the summer of 2020 here in New York. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't to the same degree, honestly. It wasn't a total evaporation of order, but it really felt like a lot of things could happen right now, good things and bad things. I mean, it was the same way in Egypt, you know, it was exhilarating for the kids I was filming with because they had been under the boot of this tyrannical regime and they felt like there was incredible opportunity. But in the moment of change, there was also incredible risk because the old regime had brought in these thugs, these violent sort of big violent guys and just told them to go beat the crap out of these protesters who were the kids that I was filming. And, you know, the normal rules of behavior, the normal rules of conduct, the normal consequences were all sort of, they were off for a while. And you can feel it. You can feel it in this animal way when that order sort of evaporates and you're waiting for another order to take its place. And uh, it's a very scary feeling. It's also kind of an exhilarating feeling. And, you know, some people who do this more than I, like I was saying, these, these war journalists, you know, there's a, there's an addictive quality to that exhilaration, you know. It seems that some minutes it seems like 
the most fascinating, energizing, compelling thing that you could ever possibly be doing. And then in other minutes, it's like sheer terror. And I was feeling this as, you know, as a filmmaker, as a journalist, as an outsider, as a person who had and had the means to leave and did leave, you know, at different points. And, you know, imagine if you're in it and you can't leave, it's even more, you know, the, I'm sure the, the terroristic side of it is more paralyzing in a way. Um, so I'm always, I'm always fascinated by people who have the courage to stand in the midst of that. I mean, this whole situation in Ukraine, you know, watching some of the, the journalists there, watching even Zelensky there, you know, very, to me, um, very inspiring to watch the people in Ukraine stand in the midst of this. You know, you, you don't know if you're going to be blown up, if your family's going to, your house is going to be blown up. There's no rules when the Russian soldiers come. Like, there's no law, there's no nothing. There's what they do and what you can stop them from doing. That's it. It's a different kind of thing, in a way, than what I'm talking about, but it's similar in that the, these bonds and strictures and, and sort of tacit agreements between us as groups of animals, we're social animals. We're not really, we're individuals, but we're really only, we only can function as part of social groups. I mean, that's why COVID was so devastating for everyone. We're not meant to sit alone in a room and look at a screen and Zoom. I mean, that's not how we're, that's not how our, the cells in our body are not organized to do that. They're organized to be in these social arrangements. And so when those fade away quickly in these periods, it's, it's very, you know, it's one of the most fascinating moments in human affairs to really look at and to understand what it means about us, what it means about our societies, what it, what it means about you yourself while you're going through it psychologically. The thing that really struck me was uh, one of the terrorists, I forget which one, most of them, it was you filming the the victim. Ashraf. Confront, Ashraf, yeah. thank you. Ashraf confronting them, talking right. to them. But one of them refused to meet with him, right? That was Zaid, uh, Zaid Harani, the recruiter in, in Jordan. Why did he refuse, do you think? Uh, you know, it's funny. I, or not funny. It's interesting. I tried to get him to talk with Ashraf quite a bit. I tried strenuously to do it, and he wouldn't do it. I don't quite remember why he wouldn't do it. He, he had some reason, and I just honestly don't remember what it was. But he did agree to meet with me, and he agreed to let me ask him whatever I wanted. And I told him I was going to ask him things on behalf of Ashraf, which I did. I mean, some things. Some things I just asked for my own reasons. But uh, he did answer all my questions. We, it was a very long interview. He didn't stop or cut it off or refuse anything. Um, did you feel a burden to be confrontational in a way that Ashraf might have been? You know, I've, I think it's important to ask hard questions when they need to be asked, when they're justified. Um, and sometimes that produces a confrontation, but my goal is not usually confrontation and my orientation as a person is not to be confrontational. So I've had, you know, had films where people don't like something and they get up and walk off and 
But I don't, my goal in, in asking the question wasn't to get them to do that. It was to ask an important question that I felt was justified and relevant. Um, Did any of the terrorists walk off at any point? No, I not, I don't, no, I don't think so, no. Um, trying to remember if anybody did. I don't think so. I don't think they did. I mean, some of them might have not wanted to answer every question. You know, the guy and the coordinator driver guy in Jakarta was, you know, he was not the most engaging person in a conversation. Um, but Zaid was, you know, Zaid got into it and, you know, and I did ask confrontational questions and he had confrontational answers. I remember one, of, I don't remember exactly the question I asked, but something like, is it okay for you to, you know, kill 165 Muslim people in Iraq? I mean, why do you think, why does your, why do you think God wants you to do that? And he said, well, let me ask you something. You're here, you're 6,000 miles from your home. Why are the, uh, you know, why are you coming into Muslim lands and dropping bombs and blah, 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 blah. And he had, you know, I mean, I'm not, I didn't have a great answer for that. So it was an interesting conversation. Um, in a way, he dodged the question, and I guess he didn't, he didn't really answer my question, but he, you know, he, he brought it back with another question, certainly engaged in, the, in a, in a back-and-forth conversation that was worthwhile. Did you see Ashraf change? I know you need to leave soon. Your uh, film's going <clears throat> to Tribeca tomorrow. I, uh, I think Ashraf changed, yeah. You know, Ashraf is an amazing guy. He... Um, you still in touch? Yeah, loosely. I, we, we were, I haven't Facebook. spoken to him in a while, honestly. But, we're, yeah, we're loosely in touch. And I, I know he had another daughter. Um, I think he's doing well. I haven't spoken to him that recently. But I, I should catch up with him. You know, it's strange in this pandemic, like our circles of, convert, of connection withered a bit. But I, hopefully we're coming out of that. Um, You're saying if yeah. he changed. Oh, if he changed, sorry. I think it was helpful for him to have these conversations and to think about his own process and to grieve a bit. I think he had bottled up some of his experience because he had to. He had to be strong for his remaining family and he had to kind of carry on and he became a real public symbol in Jordan. He was, he was the groom of Jordan. That was his public name and he was a symbol of survival and perseverance there and uh which was a good thing but also i think put a lot of stress on him and so i think as a consequence he he didn't have time to sort of sit with his own emotions as much as maybe he would have liked and i think the process of making the film i hope i hope he feels this i think he i think he does i think we talked about it that it gave him time to sort of think through some of that and process it which was helpful do you think he would have done it again if he, if he was the film? doing it over? I think so. The film and the meetings and... I think he would have, yeah. Would you? Oh, yeah. I think it was... Um, I hope the film helps people think through some of these difficult issues and, and process them and try to work... To, you know, Ashraf's line and sort of my line through it, following him, is... is it's okay to have differences. Let's find a way to talk about them 
without killing one another. And that certainly seems like a better solution than, than the alternative. All right, well, thank you very much. I know you gotta go. Okay, thanks, Kai, it's a pleasure. <laughs>